Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast and uh, we're uh, here, we, as in uh, Gareth and I, uh, my wingman, good buddy and uh, agent for Mediate. Uh, morning Gareth, how are you? Uh, yeah, very good Andy, thank you, you? I'm very well, very well thanks. Missing something for the weekend, um, there was some sort of little piddly tournament that should have been around sort of um, 12 guys from one side of the pond and 12 guys from another. Um, yeah. yeah, the Ryder Cup was missing. Um, so I got a bit nostalgic about it, I've got to be honest. I took a little bit of a game of golf at the Belfry last week. But um, yeah, the Ryder Cup was missing. We'll come back to my golf at the Belfry. Um, there's not an awful lot to shout about. <laughs> um, the Belfry one. Um, that's all I will say, the golf course one. But um, strange environment as, as everywhere is. But um, yeah, it presented itself extremely well as a golf course and a golfing challenge because it was blowing about 20 mile an hour. Um, yeah, so it's a it, you know it, it is always a great test and in great condition. So uh, you know it, it can present itself for a tournament at any time. And of course, obviously there was a tour event there only a few weeks ago. So um, you know, I felt like a, a bit of a tour player while I was there. Although I'd have probably missed the cut um <laughs> for sure um but uh, yeah the rider cup rider cup was missing um there's a little bit of tv of course um you know that that helped no it didn't really um i'll be perfectly honest with you you know live rider cup there's nothing like it i've got to say i think it's absolutely the best decision that both tours could have made um both pgas of course um you can't play a rider cup without a crowd you know, I'm just watching some of the footage from uh, the past, the miracle at Medina, especially, you know, the first tee with Poults and Bobba, you know, ramping up the noise. You know, I, I mean, even though I've watched it probably three dozen times, um, still get goosebumps, still get the hairs on the back of my neck go. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for the players. I you know, Justin Rose said his heart rate was about 160 and he wasn't hitting the shot. Um, you know, just tremendous. I don't think either player managed to hit the fairway, um, if I remember rightly. But uh, of course, you know, what an incredible Ryder Cup. But a question for you, Gareth. Um, what's your favourite Ryder Cup? <coughs> oh, there's, there's a few. I remember... Um... I think, remind me, Andy, it wasn't, um, was it Oakmont when we won in the States for like a, quite, quite a, like a few years? Um, uh, Oak Hill. Was it Oakmont? Oak, Oak Hill, yeah. yeah. All I can remember from that is, I was very young, and it was my kind of first foray into golf, really. And I remember my dad going and walking around the streets because he couldn't watch the end. He couldn't watch the final few holes. Really? Is that the one where Faldo beat Strange? That was the yeah. one, yeah. I just remember him disappearing and then he'd come in and he was still on the TV. <laughs> and he was he was literally hiding behind the sofa. Yeah. It was the most surreal like kind of <laughs> experience ever. 1995, uh, that was. And yeah, we'd ha we had one. We'd won it um, in the States. We'd won it at Muirfield Village in 87, which was... Um, uh, one that I can remember, but not for one for the audience. Um, <laughs> I remember the Saturday night. Well, actually, I don't much remember the Saturday night, but I do remember the Sunday. Um, there was, a, you know, let's just say that it was an entertaining weekend on the golf course with two tournaments played uh, at different venues on the same day on the Saturday. I wasn't feeling too well. 
um, but decided mm -hmm. to go out and celebrate anyway. All I can say is that um, half a dozen paracetamol and a, a glass of wine um, doesn't go down very well. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the ugly evening um, that, uh, that sort of prevailed um, left me in a little bit of a state of affairs for the next morning. But um, yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, 87 was the first victory in the US. And then subsequently, the, um, sorry, for Europe. And then, um, you know, because we, we got Keir Island and the putt that never went in, you know, that, uh, that Langer had. And then, uh, Obviously, 95 was sort of like, you know, let's go and get it back. And, um, you, you know, the Ryder Cup at that point in time was sort of pitching back and forth and back and forth. It was a really strong battle. And, and of course, America always, you know, was was the favourites. Um, you know, recent years, Europe has been favourite, you know, in, at times. And um, but but definitely, you know, in your own backyard. Um, the USA were definitely the favourites, and yeah, for the inspirational event of Sevier's, of course, it was his last Ryder Cup. I remember I watched that, that particular Ryder Cup at um, my dad's um, playing partners. We went around to his um, because he got Sky TV. We hadn't got satellite TV at the time, and it was the first Ryder Cup to actually go on to Sky, um, sort of internationally, and. Um, you know, we watched it round there and, you know, I remember, you know, I think we walked around and, you know, sort of carried a few sort of tins with us and, you know, had a few beers and, you know, just watched it. And we had, we had a really entertaining evening, of course, you know, it, it buoyed in the favour of Europe, um, you know, and set up nicely, seven, uh, you know, the, the two years later for Seve to become uh, the captain at Valderrama and of course win in the first one in Europe uh, on mainland Europe so yeah I mean Ryder Cup is just tremendous um, you know I think for me uh, 85 Ryder Cup was you know a turning point I think 83 Ryder Cup was the turning point for the Ryder Cup I think it showed that Europe had the capacity to be able to take a game to America and you know of course it went down to the wire um, you know, Bernard Gallagher getting beaten two and one. I, we haven't re rehearsed this. We haven't talked about it, but then these are my recollections. Uh, I'm one to say that he was beaten by possibly Andy Bean, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it was ultimately went to the wire, um, you know, on that. And of course, then 85, um, you know, the Belfry. I just left school. I was working at the Belfry. What a baptism to golf and and the golf industry for me, um, and and watching what was going on, watching how the players were, you know, sort of preparing, feeling the pressure from inside the ropes and and inside the working environment of that big, you know, enormous tournament, which really wasn't that big, you know, at the time. Um, I mean, it was just ridiculous. You know, in terms of a retail operation, if I get my numbers right, we were a relatively small retail operation shop-wise in comparison to what's around now in the Tenty Village and everything else. But we had we, we had the merchandising um, at the Belfry, had the merchandising um, to the contract. Of course, it all went out to tender after that. Um, but my recollection was we just finished shy of fifty thousand pounds retail for the week wow. um which on which was probably something close to um five or six weeks worth of 
regular income. Um, you know, so and we were non-stop. The, the shop was open; it was manned. You know, we had to have security on all doors to manage the you know the flow of you know bodies in and out of the shop. It was not a big a big facility, really. When you think of the amount of people that were there, and then four years later in '89, I think if I remember rightly, it, the the shop sales, which was still part of the Belfry at the time, but they'd realised they couldn't handle the capacity, so they moved it into a tent. Uh, in the tented village, went from fifty thousand to a quarter of a million. Wow! And you know, so the Ryder Cup really grew, you know, from from eighty five. And for me, you know, working eighty five in the shop and eighty five on the course and the preparation build up for the course and and everything else was just uh, was seeing it from two different angles. Um, and obviously, gave me my insights into agronomy and appreciation for growing grass um you know in the, and the challenges that go with it but yeah to see to see the rider cup from two different angles two rider cups from two different angles completely uh and then you know sort of later on to be able to watch it you know without any involvement was was incredible um on the course you know yeah oh two after 9 11 and the delays and you know they Create, they got the teams and they kept the same teams for the following year. So everybody's trying to keep their form going. Um, you know, I thought that was, you know, the, the emotion of that. Medina, definitely, you know, but the, you know, one of the ones that stands out really for me was, was 99 when Europe didn't win from mm. an almost unassailable lead. And, you know, when you went to, I was just about to say, use the term, the calamity that prevailed. But of course, the captain at the time was Mark James, whose nickname was Calamity. And, you know, <laughs> so I hadn't thought about that until I was about to say it. I thought that might as well say it. <laughs> Very good. Um, but Very it, was, good, it was, you know, sort of why are you not putting your strongest out? Why are you not putting your rookies out earlier than the singles you can't you know uh, nobody's done it since to so prove that it wasn't the right thing to do it failed so it wasn't the right thing to do um but you know i remember watching that i remember watching it in the, at the belfry thing uh, sorry I, I was in jamaica at the time i remember sitting there watching it with um some friends and we were just looking at it going like I, I, just what's happening you know how how can this happen you know, but of course, America came out with its strongest team to start and it created a red wave. And we know what that does now. We saw it two years ago. Um, you, you know, you put a blue wave on there to start with and all of a sudden, you know, you you create a momentum. You create a wave for the guys further down. The guys who are looking for the inspiration are getting that inspiration. So, you know, yeah, Um but I've got to say, do you remember the shirt, Andy? Do you remember the polo shirt from yeah, that day? Yeah, but it was dreadful, it was, wasn't it? It, it, was, it was dreadful, but actually incredibly inspiring because obviously mm. the pictures were all of winning teams, and so it was it was the winning teams. It was the team photographs of the winning teams, you know, of, of Ryder Cups in the past. So uh, you know, again, very very inspiring um imagery and you know of course we all remember the the, the monster putt that was holed by um justin, justin leonard. leonard that's it i know it's a justin uh leonard against uh jose and you know the fact that then the, you know the, the sort of running onto the golf course onto the green um of course that would happen happen in europe you know i'm, I'm 
I'm not going to even try and defend it as a, an issue. It's the Ryder Cup, you know, it's where it all kicks off and, you know, kick, I think it kicks off in a healthy way. You know, we've seen a little, you know, we've seen some Seve gate, you know, with the golf balls switching the compressions around and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You, you, you know, Seve and Langa, uh, not Langa, Seve and Ollie with um, uh, Azinger and I'm trying to think who he's playing with now. But, he, you know, the Corey Pavin, the Corey Pavin or Strange um, or Curtis. I, I, Curtis I, I can't remember. I, I really can't. And, uh, you know, I don't really want to even have a stab at the stab in the dark on yeah. that one. But, um Dr. Google will figure it out, but, uh, you know, but, but ultimately, um, it, you know, it's one of those, it, it, it inspires, it, you know, it's, a, there's, a, you, there's always going to be some little juice, I'm not going to say controversy, but a little bit of juice going on, um, you know, that just wraps itself around it, you know, I, but my, you know, I, as much as 85 for the, for the reasons that were, um, you know, 85 for me starting work, being the first, Major tournament, not major tournament, but you know, certainly, well, yeah, it's a major tournament, all right. Um, but the involvement for me, you know, I've done the English Open or State Express Classic, which became the English Open uh, a couple of weeks beforehand, just before the Open Championship. That was my first event working a tour event. Um, you know, so getting a feel for that kind of work, uh, for me, you know, I guess started there. Uh, and of course, the Belfry being on the doorstep, everything had worked towards this particular tournament. I mean, it was supposed to have been there at the Belfry in 81, but the course wasn't ready. It was just too new. Um, and I'm glad it was switched ultimately because, you know, Walton Heath played its part and, you know, last minute. And, um, you know, the Belfry was ready in uh, in 85 to do what it did. But, you know, for me, the, the poignance of the Ryder Cup and the timing of it two years ago, um, you know, it was the last Ryder Cup that I sat and watched with my dad. And, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's that week of the year that, you know, for the last two years has been extremely difficult. And, you know, the, the anniversary mm. of dad's passing is on Thursday, on the 1st of October. And, you know, to be able to sit and watch the Ryder Cup, albeit dad was not in his full state of com consciousness, um, <laughs> He put his thumbs up when, you know, I said to him, Europe's won. He, he got that all right. Um, so we won the Ryder Cup, Dad, and he put his thumb up. Um, smile on his face and, you know, and sort of rested then for the rest of the evening. Um, little did I know that, you know, we've got about 16 hours left with him. So, you know, it was kind of very poignant. He'd watched, watched with me Tiger winning the week before in the Tour Championship, which was, you know, awesome. You know, he was conscious and aware of that, you know, sort of dozing a little bit in between. But, you know, he was uh, it was one of those sort of, you know, weeks, you know, it's that time of the year for me. It's very poignant um, now, always has been, um, you know, and, and going forward, you know, this week, has obviously I've got a lot of thoughts about that and, you know, things that we did. But, yeah, to be able to spend that bit of time and, and watching and, you know, lovely for you and Moe, um, Sky commentator, to make some. Uh, acknowledgements towards uh, a, twit, uh, a Twitter feed that I posted out watching that. Uh, the boys, you know, attempting to bring it home, just, um, you, you know, was really, really nice of uh, you. And, but, um, yeah, so I think from a poignant point of view, you know, obviously, you know, that, you know, two years, the last Ryder Cup two years ago, you know, will always sort of sit in my mind for, for good and for not so good reasons. But, um, it, you know, and of course, a, a victory. You know, it, it, you know, sort of made 
the whole challenge of the weekend, you know, and the, and the days to come. Um, more to savour, really, but um, yeah, the, the guys got it done. But, you know, again, you know, Ryder Cup is Ryder Cup. It's a massive distraction. It's a phenomenal event. And, um, you know, it, the timing of that and, and obviously of Dad being taken ill was, um, you know, was a significant one for us to continue to remember it. So, yeah, Ryder Cup's firmly in my and my heart runs through my blood. I mean, that's, you know, there's no easier way, better way to say it, really. Do you think the Balfrey could host another one? I think could, from a venue point of view, yeah, absolutely. Um, from a, I don't think it should, though. I think four, you know, my honest opinion, four is a ridiculous amount in, in, in relatively quick succession. Um, I think the, the span was, what, 17 years? Um, 85 to 2002 and you know I, I don't agree that one venue all right yeah they can say it's the home of the Ryder Cup or the spiritual home of the Ryder Cup or the I don't know whatever term they're using as the home but they don't agree that one venue should have it all um albeit you know the spoils got well and truly mixed up you know um two wins one draw and one loss and I think that was fair but you know I don't think the Belfry should be holding on to it there's far too many golf facilities that will host the Ryder Cup as well if not better um, for different reasons logistically it's phenomenal right in the middle of the country right next to you know, virtually right next door to the you know 15 minute drive from the airport um, albeit I had to drive past it three times for the 2002 <laughs> to get to to come back to it I mean I could literally yeah yeah you know, close and how close I work to, to the facility. I could walk there in 10 minutes um, that close, but wasn't allowed, you know, not allowed to actually do do that with that particular event. So, you know, it's a phenomenal venue. It really is. But there are so many other phenomenal venues as well. And I think they should all be given, you know, those opportunities. Logistics are a big thing. You've got to have a hotel. It's got to be on site. It's got to be within. I think Adair Manor is going to be a phenomenal venue in, you know, sort of eight years, nine years time, I guess it'll be. I mean, I don't know whether they'll revert back. Um, you know, that's to be seen, of course, but... Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Golf oh, course, just incredible. I mean, you know, uh, I didn't think it was long enough, but, you know, it's... Um, uh, I'm sure they'll sort of do whatever's necessary to make it the venue that it, uh, the Ryder Cup demands. Um, it, you know, so, you know, off to Ireland again and, you know... Then when we look at the UK, I think, you know, we, we know you've played it, um, you know, maybe a, a, a 2032 pitch for uh, JCB will be, you know, a, a phenomenal uh, venue. I've not seen the course and, you know, I would imagine that all infrastructure and facilities will definitely be in place, certainly be hinged on that. Um They'll be all right for diggers. And well, absolutely, yeah. Nice was, uh, for those of you that don't know, JCB is the earth moving company that provides, you know, many a, a digger, um, bulldozer, backhoe, whatever you need to dig a hole. JCB's got that tool for you. Uh, and it's got an amazing golf facility, um, which Gareth has, has had the pleasure. And I, I'm hoping at some point we'll be able to to get an opportunity to go and play Um you know, but uh, yeah, what what a, a phenomenal looking golf course, and um, you know, I think it definitely has the opportunity to be able to provide um, you know a phenomenal venue. So, um, 
such a good risk-reward golf course, good match-play golf course. There's lots of opportunities, especially the back three, the, the 16th, lovely long yeah. par four, then a, a 235-yard oh, island green downhill, green, 17th to finish. Do it That'd be a great one. And then going up. I, I didn't. The first time I played it, I hit a two-iron. And I went in. The, I went in the right bunker, um, but it's such a daunting yeah. tee shot and an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, experience. But then 18 is equally as hard. It, it could e- easily be a par mm. five if you push the tees back. Um, daunting tee shot with the water left, out of bounds left, and up right. There's a big bunker, so it's. I think it would set up perfectly for a, for a Ryder Cup kind of element. And I know Lord Bamford and the team at the JCB, I think that's what they aspire to. They want these big world events at that Great. amazing venue. Great. You know, I'd love, you know, I'd love to see it. You know, again, relatively local, certainly to you. It's an hour away from me, but, um, you know, phenomenal. Um, prospect, you know, going forward. And of course, Europe's got so many great golf courses um, as well. And, um, mm. it, you know, we can't, you know, Germany's not hosted one yet, and yet it's produced some great players. And, um, you know, you'd have to think that at some point, you know, Germany would be on the cards for, you know, popping a, a Ryder Cup into the mix. But, um, you know, there's a heck of a lot of things have changed in recent times. And so, you know, who knows? Um, the Ryder Cup is is going to be one of those venues that is affected by change. Nothing is immune to the changes that we've gone through in, the, in recent times. So, uh, you know, we're hoping, pray that obviously things get back to some kind of normal so that we can talk about the normal side of golf. Um, should we do a bit of normal? Um, a little bit of tour talk, because yeah. obviously we should have been doing a Ryder Cup and should have been, God, crikey, that would have been an amazing podcast. There would have been two or three podcasts hold <laughs> out, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, we'd have been exhausted by some kind of means, whether or not <laughs> tiredness, because it'd have, it would have been a late one for us or... Um, you know, just the pure excitement of it, or as it as it invariably um, pans out to that. Um, you know, uh, hats off to John Caitlin. I mean, you know, second win in a month. Um, terrific golf played uh, in Ireland. Um, interesting golf course. Interesting that they've had in September frost delays. I mean, that that just mm-hmm. like, what's going on there. Um, and of course, a little bit different to the PGA Tour, We're playing in Dominican Republic, which is, you know, a, a phenomenal venue. And it looks oh, stunning, Andrew, isn't it? I think it was. Was it that part? Was it that part three eight that was the ocean on the left hand mm. side? And it just looked yeah, beautiful. yeah. There's some phenomenal golf courses out there, and um, you know, it's uh, it, you know, just yeah. I mean, there are just they're, they're just amazing, stunning pieces of real estate to to work with. I think. Um, Pete Dyer was on one of the courses, though. And Teeth of the Dog, um, the course that uh, he designed there, Laumana, he, he said that uh, uh, I think 11 holes run alongside the ocean and uh, wow. the others sort of come inside inland a little bit. And he said, you know, I didn't really create this golf course. God did. <laughs> and, you know, mm. he created the real estate. We just put some, we just cut it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it. you know, yeah, there's a little bit more of that. But, it, more to it than that but yeah i mean it's it, it's stunning you know and i think golf courses that run alongside an azure blue ocean rather than sort of the dirty gray thing that we tend to look at um you know sort of has a 
a feel good factor about it. We're normally getting battered by 30 mile an hour winds, minus three chill temperature, mm -hmm. um, you know, and very coarse, very wiry grasses and dunes that, you know, you can't but hide, use them to hide from the wind a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, Lynx golf is phenomenal. It isn't Lynx golf, uh, of course, in, in the Caribbean and, and you know, the likes uh, there because different types of soils, different types of um, grasses, of course, because of the temperatures that they're, they're sort of growing them in. So it doesn't behave like a true Lynx course does with the fescues. But, um, you know, yes, yeah, stunning. Um, interesting golf and, you know, and terrific win um by uh mr swafford swafford Harris yeah, swafford. Great name. yeah um but uh mm. yeah terrific play and of course you know he had, he had to dig deep uh no three putts for the entire round uh sorry for the entire tournament which is an interesting stat i'm not sure if you've got his um strokes gain stats have they been posted yet gareth but um I but, the, uh, but no three putts for 72 holes. Um, I don't know what his conversions inside 10 feet were uh, either at this stage, but he had to hit in the, he hit a pressure packed third shot uh, on the, on the 501, 501 yard par, <laughs> par four driving a wedge. Um, I think it was one of his the gappy wedges as well, a 50 degree wedge. Um, but he didn't get it to the top level of the green and uh, he left himself one of those putts that you'd never want two for uh, the win. But he, he rolled it up to about five or six feet and then, you know, kept his head on his shoulders and uh, made a super stroke and knocked it in dead centre. So, you know, sort of congratulations there. It was, it, it, <laughs> when I saw the caption come up, I thought, oh, there you go, commentator's curse without saying it. And then, of course, commentator says it, no three putts for the week. You know, I mean, it's just like, oh. So, you know, but yeah, hats off. I mean, it's a very super solid stroke. And, you know, he did, I think Trevor Immelman was was commentating and he said something that was really um, quite very relevant. I think it's fair to say that, you know, when you're listening to some of the commentaries, it is not the best advice that you hear. Um, from time to time, it's a little on the questionable side. But, you know, said what would you do here what would you recommend here trevor what would be going through your mind he said keep it simple uh, yeah, which was profound um i wasn't quite expecting that um <laughs> it did take me back a little bit you know just keep doing what you've been doing yeah yeah you've got to stay in the present you've got to stay in the present of of you know recognizing what you've been doing in the recent past, he just hold a lovely 10 foot putt for Birdie at 17, which of course gave him the one shot lead. Again, he'd blown a four shot lead, so he didn't want to do that again. And all those things will go through your head. I don't care how good you are with your positive thinking, you will think about the things that have gone on. And if there's been some negative stuff going on there, then you will think about it. So he was, you know, it was relevant. And um, yeah, he would have known he's not three putt as well and he's left himself one of those potential three putts so the opportunity was there for him to get it wrong and he gave himself every opportunity to do so but you know travel and will say keep it as simple as you can just make a smooth stroke on it just put your best stroke on the ball just do what you've been doing you know and there was a lot of positive self-taught communication going on there which i thought was very very impressive so you know yeah a lot to be taken mm -hmm. from from that, you know, particular instance, and um, you know, well, like I say, well done, um, you know, for the victory. So yeah, that 
he had some he had some great stats, Andy. Hudson, he had um, driving distance, it was three oh three at week oh, yeah. average. Um driving percentage, seventy-eight percent. The greens and greens and regulations, seventy yeah. percent. Um uh, and then putts were one point six four. Okay. One point six four, which will equate to roughly um what we're we looking at there, around about twenty twenty eight putts around, something like that. So, you know, yeah, yeah particularly, you know. Um and then uh, we got a strokes gained on there. I haven't put the strokes gained on okay. yet. They've just done these. Yeah, but stats. you know, impressive either. But, yeah. but great, yeah, impressive, great very impressive driver of the ball. Um, I've got to say that. So, mm. You know, and of course, you know, we you know we focus on putting a short game here. You know, this is what one putt is all about. You know, is putting a short game. But you know, you have have you do have to have the acknowledgement that you know the, a good drive in the short stuff will give you the best opportunity to get. A shot at one putt every single approach shot you make. So you know, don't don't think yeah. that we don't do anything about driving. I may not teach folk how to improve their driving. Doesn't mean that I'm not down the driving range five times a week, about well, four now. Um, but there's a good reason why it's down to four. But um, you know, four times a week. You know, figuring my own stuff going on with the driver. But um, I've got to say, actually, to be fair, I've been driving it pretty well. Um, with the new driver in the bag, um, you know, and uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I had a new, I had a, I had two new drivers in the bag this summer, which is a little unusual because I don't tend to change that that club very often. But a, a, a little crack in the neck of my Ping LST four hundred um, driver during lockdown um, prompted a change of equipment, and I had one eye on the latest equipment coming out from Tour Edge. Um, Tour Exotics 220 and the 220 Pro um, was just about to sort of drop into the bags of the Tour players and was very fortunate to get hold of both of those drivers and um, give them a go. And then Ping in their incredible customer service fashion um, replaced my uh, 400 LST for a 410 LST, which of course is not the latest equipment available to tour players and soon to be to the public in the 425 version. But um, LST 410 uh, came back. Um, my good friend and club builder, Melvin Fern from Four Counties Golf, uh, who does build all of the uh, tour exotics, put a tip on a couple of my uh, driver shafts and allowed me to test the two drivers and the feel on the four uh, the 410 is phenomenal and i have to say it's the easiest driver i've ever used as i'm not playing as much golf and competing like i used to it's about finding the club that's actually easier to use not necessarily one that performs the best when you strike it well and uh, unfortunately yeah the tour edge has taken a, a back seat and um it, you know it i'm not saying that it won't pop back in the bag um but certainly you know the 410 is without doubt the easiest driver i've ever hit it it inspires me to look at as does the tour edge but you know when i put it down i just know what i'm going to get and you know when you get a club like that 
you can't shout too highly about it. You know, it is really one of those things that you just look at it and go like, you know what, this is just incredible. You know, this, this is so much fun to use. And, um, you know, I've got to say that, uh, you know, it's been a, a tremendous uh, addition to the bag. So, uh, I'm, you know, it helps when you stand on the tee and you know that you can shape it both ways. Um, on purpose, even better. Um, so, you know, and it, I, I have got the tour edge uh fairway wood and hybrids and driving irons and the like in the bag and you know I'm, I'm loving them very much but uh my word what an incredible driver um that four that 410 lst is I, I dread to think if they've improved it but at 425 and ping generally do improve their clubs um they don't just replace them for the sake of it i dread to think what uh how much better i could be driving it with a 425 Ping, if you if you're listening, Aww. I'll be more than happy yeah. to try one for you. <laughs> but, um... With with that mm. in mind, Andy, we had a we had a great question from kind of friend of the show, Neil the Scotsman, who's based out in Texas. He said, "Should you kind of change your your shaft makeup in your mm. wedges in accordance with your irons, or do you need stiffer, softer?" What what are your thoughts on on shaft makeup when you get to your wedges, opposed to your irons, and even your wood? Uh, okay, um, well I'll answer the question because I think Neil, that is a phenomenal question, um, and you know I've got to be honest with you, it's one of my favourite questions that I get asked when it comes to wedge fitting. The shaft is uh, we we know um, there are products out there that are offering more stable strikes when you miss the sweet spot we we know that we've had conversations with leading wedge designers and um you know i'm going to put it out there and put somebody under pressure now and so if you can get me the product i'll give you a proper review um on it i'm not going to mention who it is but um get your product into the uk so that i can test it and we will build it with a proper shaft in it so that we can get a true review um, to see whether you're right in what you're saying. Um, so I think ultimately where we're, where we're at with, um, with wedges, especially, we have covered, I mean, look, the, the golf industry for me are struggling when it comes to wedges and, and, um, and putting. But proper custom building products for um for the public is is an issue for me it's a huge deal you know I, I really really struggle with the fact that the industry hasn't cottoned on yet making clubs playable and forgiving in you know putters and wedges is down to the makeup of the club i think the majority of the time the wedges are too heavy making them very difficult to make longer which makes them easier to use because you're not bent over them as much. Now, uh, you know, if you are happen to be taller than around 5'11", heading towards six foot, you're going to need an extra bit of length on the shaft. And then if the heads are as heavy as they actually are, then it's very difficult for that club to be balanced out with a shaft that then balances the club. So what am I saying? In answer to Neil's question, first and foremost, the flex of the shaft isn't as important as the flex point, but probably not as important as the weight of the club as well. So the weight, weight of the shaft, especially. 
I use variable weighted shafts, as many of you will know. So my uh, long irons start at 85 and then go through to 8, um, 90, 95, 100, 110 into the, um, the, the least lofted of my wedge in graphite. And then I move to 120 steels at 50 um, degrees. So, um, so I've got a club, you know, I've got clubs in the bag now that are, are very well balanced, but I'm, all my wedges are 120 grams. And as soon as you get up to that, um, that weight, with the head weights that we see, we're ultimately challenging the balance of the club. And, you know, it becomes too heavy, too clunky. You know, it's a little bit like the sledgehammer trying to crack a nut. You're trying to play very precise and very sort of delicate shots around the greens with a club that's got um, a very heavy head. And for good reason, it needs to be heavier, but it's heavier because the clubs are shorter. Now, if the average golfer at six foot using a club that's half, you know, quarter, half an inch, um, or even three quarters of an inch longer than standard, your swing weights then start to go through the roof. So you could be looking at a standard iron, you know, with the same normal weight of shaft and flex of shaft if you don't go graphite. Um, you know, all of a sudden the swing weight can go up to, you know, so the, from D2 to D4, which, you know, starts to be noticeable, you know, quarter of an inch, you know, half an inch, we're now up to D6, you know, and these are just approximates. So just getting an idea that we're keeping, you know, the club's getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier, which means that ultimately it's not so easy to swing quickly. So you get the extra length, but you need it because you need because you're standing over it. And then you get down to wedges. And then I've seen this make up so many times, and especially, you know, as a putting a short game coach, and guys come to me and say, Oh, I'm really struggling with my short game. Can you help me out? Yes, we go through a consultation. First part of the consultation is the equipment. Um, you know, it's not the skill. Because the equipment has to be able to help the, that, you know, what it is that we're looking at. So I get a player who's got a 56 or a 60 degree wedge in their hands and it's standard length on a six foot two, which means they're bent over it against like the 34 inch putter. They're bent over too far. You bend over too far. You can't use your um, lumbar spine to rotate. You, you, you're not wanting to use a lot of hip rotation you're using your hands and arms. Your chest is barely moving, and we wonder why the arms are swinging away from, they're swinging the club away from the body, and we're shanking it. You know, we're hitting it fat, we're hitting it thin, we're doing all sorts of things. You can't get your weight off your back foot because you're trying to get the ball in the air. You know, all these issues come about because the equipment just does not fit. And this, you know, I think it's about time now that manufacturers started to look at variable weight heads on these clubs. They're throwing a price point now at the, I mean, you know, in the States, we're looking at $200 for wedges for stock wedge. They're not stock wedge. They are wedge companies. So like Evokies and your Cleveland's and, you know, the likes, they're heading towards the 189. They're, they're going to be 200 bucks next year. And they're making the clubs almost unplayable because they're not long enough for the player to work with. And you know as well as I do that I am a lover of the idea of signal length clubs making them work, but they can't be, you know, they've got to be, they've got to be lighter. The wedges have to be lighter. It's as simple as that. You can't do it without the wedges being lighter. But that, you know, at the end of the day, it's just not just a case of grinding some weight off, because, you know, there's an aesthetics element on a 200 quid club. 
you know, and, and likewise on a 400 pound, 450 pound club, you're going into PXG markets and murals and, and the like. So, you know, when you're making a club, you've got to be mindful of the weight and you've got to put a shaft in there that balances. So ultimately around about 120 grams, which will be a fairly soft, stiff um, flex in KBS. Um, you know, they, they do their tour version, which is a little bit softer in the tip. Um, you know, that's that's a would be a little bit firmer uh, at 120. But if you're playing 120 in your irons, then you really need to be 125, 130 in your wedges. Uh, of course, then you've got the, the added weight of the head. And if you need a little bit longer than standard, the thing all of a sudden turns into a, um, you know, sledgehammer. So these are the challenges that we're dealing with that, you know, tour players are, you know, more than happy to go and sit in, you know, with their clubs up against the grinding wheel to take out, you know, 10 grams of head weight. You know, they'll say they're shaping the soul of the club, you know, to, to make it play. But actually, they're also trying to balance the club as well. So, you know, removing some weight in the heel, you know, so that, you know, there's a little bit more weight out in the toe, which then gives the, the toe a little bit more forgiveness. And, you know, so that's why you'll see tungsten weights in the toe of wedges, you know, sort of oftentimes hidden, um, you know, within the metals. But, you know, you can actually see that they've got these weights out there. And I think, it, you know, if, if manufacturers would step up to it a little bit more, um, you know, and get some variable weights in there, uh, a little bit like we've seen with putters, you know, in recent times, I think that would be a really good way to go because, you know, make the club lighter and then, you know, put the put a, a set weight into the toe. So stock length club might have, you know, sort of, a, you know, a 20 gram weight in it. But, you know, if you need to make it longer, then you can reduce the weight of the head by five and 10 grams and, you know, down to, um, you know, n almost nothing, you know, like we've done with putters. And I think it would be, you know, we'll see a massive increase in the performance of, of the club for doing it that way. I think uh, I think the the new PXG wedges you you've got that ability the, in the new Sugar Daddy zero three one one they've got the oh, weight they, in the oh they um, in the PXGs the, yeah PXG. they've had the they've had yeah, the weights um, before but they've they've not necessarily been variable I don't know whether that's because uh, certainly from the fitter's point of view I know that the guys have come glued in so if they are variable um, mm. then that's fantastic and I think you know they were doing that for a reason you know that's they knew that they could play with them and they, they knew they could spread the weight a little bit more around the club. And I think it's a phenomenal, um, you know, sort of platform to work from because ultimately, why not? You know, when it comes down to it, Neil, you know, in answer to your question, um, you know, if your clubs are longer, then the important things about your wedges are that, you know, is getting some balance in there. If the clubs are longer, then, you know, sort of try and get your wedges longer as well. Um, it may well mean you have to go to a slightly lighter shaft. So for me, you know, um, it, you know, because you need uh, you need to go longer um, to help balance out the swing weight. KBS makes them phenomenal. I'm going to give a big shout out to KBS and any other manufacturers that might be listening. You can, you know, sort of feel free to, um, you know, pick up the phone and have a chat. You know, it's um, I know there's plenty of manufacturers out there, but. You know, ultimately, KBS have been extremely supportive of concepts that, you know, and conversations that I've had. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of the 610, um, which is a low spin, uh, sorry, high spin, low flighted shot. 
um, characteristic comes from a thicker butt on the club. So the, the grip end of the club is thicker in terms of diameter. So that 610 represents the thickness of the shaft um, at, the, at the butt end. Um, stock can be anything from 5.58 of an inch to you know, point, uh, 0.6. Um, and you know, um, the, the 610 is what it is, it's a 610 because it's a 0.61 um shaft, um, but diameter, and that stabilizes that end of the club and allows the lower end of the club to, you know, sort of look after the you know, sort of control element of the spin and the release. So, I, I absolutely love what that shaft does. Um, and they do come in a very sexy smoke black as well. So, um, you know, so it actually mm -hmm. blends in very nicely into my graphite irons. Um, so, you know, nothing's too stark, nothing changes too much. And that, I think that's also something that's, that's, you know, very good. And of course, there's a premium option on that one. So, you know, but they, they're also, um, I'm a huge fan of the S taper, which I think provides the feel element of a very strong shaft within the lineup called C taper. And the C taper is a you know very strong shaft um it's what the high speed swingers of the club are so if you're swinging your driver over 120 25 mile an hour you're you're going to be an, a c taper player but you know you may well find that the c taper in the wedges is a little bit strong so the s taper is the same bend profile but with feel so you know that provides a, a softer feel in there so you can keep the weight you can keep the flex um, you know, because if you're 130 in your irons, then you don't want to be going much more than that with your with your wedges. It's very difficult to actually make them, um, you know, more than that because you're chopping the thing down as well. Remember, so um, so there is a huge huge element of that, and I've done lots of testing when it comes to wedge shafts and getting those things balanced and and right. And you know, I've found that you know those two particular shafts I do move between the 610 and the S taper um you know in my wedges and you know for depending on how i want to flight the shot 610 is a little bit lower um the spin rate stays the same and the s taper just a little bit higher with you know very very similar spin rates so there's there's not a lot in there not a huge fan of the high rev to be honest with you because i want the high rev it's going to spin more but it also launches higher so i don't want a wedge to be launching higher um, I like to control the flight. If I want to hit it higher, I'll just open the face and add some loft. So, you know, I don't want the shaft to be doing that for me. And then I'm playing a shot in the wind. I suppose if I was playing a bit more in the States and, you know, hotter, humid climates with less wind, then, um, it, you know, I probably would, you know, give the, the uh, high rev shaft a, a bit more time, um, you know, in the bag to test out. But, um, you know, I, I've not felt the need to because I, I am a, a control the flight one hot stop. I don't want the ball zipping back either. That's another thing to be mindful of. And the shots around the green, the shaft is not going to release, at, you know, aggressively enough, you know, for for you to worry about, you know, having something around the green that's going to pop the ball up. If you if you can't strike it with the loft and the speed uh, of the club, then you know, you're not going to get the golf ball in the air. Um, I am. I've got to be honest with you. I Sort of indulged a little bit on Thursday, um, listening to a foresight uh, quad webinar um, with some science that has been applied to wedges. Um, 
unfortunately I lost the internet connection partway through so I'm waiting for the recording to be available but some just incredible data on understanding how a golf ball comes off a wedge and what it takes to build a wedge that's making these shots as forgiving as you possibly can and that's the thing with with wedges um you know they are the last bastion really of, of forgiving clubs i mean they're you know it's it's more than probable that you know your bladed irons if you are using them is more forgiving than your uh your wedge um especially if you hit it high up on the club you know the ball sitting up a little bit in the rough the ball doesn't fly if you catch it you know above the fifth groove and um you know comes up stalls and comes up short and that's something that you know i think manufacturers have got to address they've got to look at it do you think that from your perspective is is still there's a lot of evolution to go on with the wedges um, we haven't really uh, we have with drivers i think we've got to that cross with drivers and maybe wedges that yeah i think the problem that we've got with um with the driver is uh, you know we're up against limits already um and i think you can possibly make it more forgiving but you can't really make it um you know longer um but with wedge with wedges i think you know we've got to look at distribution of weight i think we've got to work out what it is that the club's doing you know to to help the player and you know, invariably, I don't think their wedge does help the player um, a lot. I'm, you know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the Glide 2 wedges from Ping. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel that the clubs do offer um, an element of forgiveness, this weight that's kind of looks like it protrudes from the top. I don't see it when I look down at it. It doesn't look a clunky wedge at all. Um, for me, you know, and their, and their Glide Forge wedges are phenomenal, of course, um, as a forged wedge. But there's no forgiving, you know, nature in the high up strike. So part of the reason why I'm st- stuck on Glide 2, um, 2.0, to get it absolutely right, is um, is the sheer fact that, you know, there's an element of forgiveness higher up the blade. I'm not looking for forgiveness left and right, you know, heel and toe. You know, it's up and down. I want that. I'm trying to strike around the second and third groove. But, um, you know, I don't want the golf club to be doing anything peculiar when I strike it out the top of the club and I do find that you know there's um, an element of forgiveness in those uh, wedges that for me um, you know makes makes that club a lot more playable um, you know than, than some of the other wedges out there and, and you know manufacturers are leaning towards it but you know I think we've got to we've got to start to look at like some changes and it's, and it's difficult to make the changes um, without adding multiple materials because you know which means then we're going to increase the cost of the, the production costs and and ultimately the retail costs and you know as an industry we we're mindful of that but if you're looking for performance and you want to improve your game inside 100 yards you've got to get fitted properly for your wedges yeah so i'm not so sure we've even exhausted that <laughs> oh no! I think, I think we did get. I know we did an earlier one around wedges, but I think we could. Yeah, we could talk all day around wedge development, and hopefully, as you said, we've got some exciting announcements coming over the next. Yeah, few you know, I mean, you know, you know, we're not even sort of touching the surface, which is, you know, what what does the the grind of the soul do when it interacts with the ground? I mean, you know, there's a there's a whole raft of things there, and that's why. You know, guys like Brett Rumford and Thomas Bjorn here in the, the on the European tour 
are in grinding their own wedges in the in the Titleist truck and the Callaway uh, truck all the time. You know, they get new wedges, they grind them themselves. They know exactly what they're looking for. And I love the fact that we've got guys who are prepared to get dirty, you know, and grind their own wedges. Um, you know, because that's telling that's telling the industry, look, you know, I am the expert in my field. I know what I want, you know, and if you're not prepared to make it, I'll make sure that it works. They don't care that there's a little bit of lead tape or a whole lump of lead tape slapped over the club somewhere to, to bring the weight back, you know, to what's necessary. They grind it to play, you know, and, and, and that's the key with those guys. They are, you know, absolutely, you know, getting it right to make sure that they, they know exactly where they are. Um, and they're playing their shots, and that's why they are as good as they are around the greens. So, good stuff, and another great pod. Really enjoyed that. Lots of to topic areas, as always. We've discussed. Yeah, I know. It's just um, you know quite quite incredible. We'll, you know, we we'll always have a list. And Gareth oftentimes throws a curveball at me, as as many of you will know. He tries to catch me out. Um, you know, but uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it's um, it, you know, I mean, ultimately. Yeah, we've um, we, we can cover every aspect of the game. You know, we try to stick to our field of expertise um, because there you will trust that, that I've done the research necessary. Of course, I've played the game of golf for forty three years. Well, I even played a bit of golf this week. I did say I played at the Belfry. The Belfry beat me up. Just for the record, the Belfry beat me up. Mm -hmm. um, I did manage to break eighty, just with a par at the last. Um, <laughs> And those of you that have seen the Belfry, uh, driving a three-wood off a good drive, it was later in the evening. It was not quite dark, but it was, um, you know, we'll, um, there's, a, there's a video uh, out there with me hitting my second shot. And, um, yeah, it's a 245-yard shot for my second, uh, which would suggest that the drive wasn't, um, wasn't very well struck or very far. Uh, did hit it a little bit right. You can bite off a little bit more. But um, I thought the wind would help it along a little bit. Hit a cracking drive and nutted, absolutely nutted a three-wood. If the wind was going to help, then it should have been downwind, but it wasn't. Um, so I'd misjudged the wind. But ultimately, it was a really uh, strong hole, as it always is. And with the flag in the middle of the green, driving a three-wood to a hole that's sort of 485 yards, um, it just shows you how, how difficult that golf course can play. But... Um, yeah, managed to break 80 just uh, with a one one over par back nine. <laughs> so it shows you I oh, got beaten up on the front mm -hmm. nine. Um, but yeah, phenomenal uh, golf course. I'm just so, so glad that I played at Stratford the day before and managed to have seven birdies. Um, because <laughs> I felt I'm, I did feel having had the seven birdies on Stratford that I wasn't likely to get uh, seven birdies at the Belfry. But um, yeah, I'm happy to say that I didn't manage to get any birdies either. At Belfry, <laughs> so I had exhausted them all from the day before, but it was a bit of a, you know, a brutal challenge in the wind. And um, if you only hit seven greens, I think I hit in regulation, then um, you know, then then it does become quite a challenge. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough tough golf course. You get a chance to play it, play it because you know it it is a um, you know a really good test of golf. It is in phenomenal condition, and um, you know definitely, but. Uh, I know it's slightly different with the private golf club. Stratford were very gracious and allowed me courtesy uh, to play there. Played with one of the members who's a good friend of mine, uh, Andy McArthur, and you know we we had a great afternoon. Um, course again in phenomenal condition. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's it, unfortunately because of the current situation, not open to visitors uh, in the norm. Go as a visitor's guest, but there's very stringent restrictions uh, around that. And it is all a little bit weird for me um, still around the uh, visiting of golf courses and facilities and not being as sociable as they were and uh you know all, all these restrictions that we have to abide by um is a bit of a challenge once you're out on the golf course all is good i love it and uh, i think that's where we should find ourselves in the next seven days on the golf course as many times as we can hopefully get an opportunity to play later in the week if i get an opportunity to play on thursday it'll take away my thoughts and allow me to spend a bit of time with my thoughts and my dad but um i do wish every single one of you a great week and we will catch up with tour talk and everything else that we've got to uh throw in with the golf industry and one putts all week um at this time next week so looking forward to catching up with you then thanks for being an awesome audience and you know where to find us follow us on linkedin and insta twitter and facebook all at andy gorman golf appreciate your follows if you can follow and share and like and subscribe we will be absolutely stoked on that and continue to grow the audience we can continue to do what we do for you so thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you this time next week bye for now